Welcome to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. And now here's your host, Joe Levitt. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. You know, if you're like me, you love a great barbecue cookbook or barbecue cookbooks are often kind of that gift, a gift of choice from others to you uh, because they just know that you'll love it. Well, our guest today, uh, if you fall into that category of a barbecue cookbook person, our guest today should be familiar with you. He's authored five books, including The South's Best Butts, what a great name, Serial Griller, another great name, and his latest book, Butcher and the Block. Please welcome to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast, Matt Moore. Matt, thanks for being here, man. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, first, uh, let me say that the new book is just absolutely stunning. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that you were, you were going for a look and if it, 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 it achieved it, it really is just start to finish just a stunning book. It's 350 pages, massive. Yeah, it's, it's heavy. Yeah. I've, I've not felt it. Uh, I've, I've seen kind of the online version you shared with me, but it, uh, it is just stunning. Um, and I, I kind of want to read the first lines of, of the introduction. Uh, it says, this is not a book about butchering per se, rather it's about the butcher. This particular work cuts even deeper than just the trade. It is personal. After all, the art of butchering runs in my blood. So talk us through like you kind of then go on to tell the story about how butchering is in kind of your blood. So tell a little bit about that that family background there, because that's fascinating. Yeah, I'm glad you said it. Um, I struggled for quite some time not being a butcher for uh, writing a book with the angle of um, really using the lens of the butcher. And so um, I have a great editor at, at HarperCollins. She did my last book as well. And finally, she said, just say it. It's your book. And so ultimately, you know, it is not a book about butchering, right? You can go back thousands of years and pick up techniques and um, secrets of the trade, and, and not a whole lot has changed, quite honestly. Um, but I did want to use that as the lens um, to open up this incredible world and, and actually retrace um, my own family history uh, that actually really ended with my grandfather. So my great-great-grandfather uh, came from uh, Beirut and settled uh, first in France, as a lot of the folks from the Middle East did, and then um, made his way here to Tennessee and then ultimately to Valdosta, Georgia, and started a little fruit stand and kind of a gas station concept, uh, which then evolved from my great-grandfather, Sam, and then ultimately my grandfather, um, Abe. And um, so they had a, a family store, and that was before we have the mass supermarkets of, of the landscape that took over in the 70s and 80s and uh, carried on this trade. And then his son, Jim, uh, didn't follow his footsteps. He, he decided to become a banker. And so for me, after coming off of writing uh, The South's Best Butts, which was my homage not only to the pork shoulder, but traveling the barbecue belt and celebrating everything that happens really great, low and slow, following that with Cereal Griller in 2020, all the goodness that happens from the Meyer reaction and hot and fast, uh, my publisher came back to me and said, well, why don't you combine the two subjects and write one book on barbecue and grilling? And I told him it was a terrible idea because they are two disparate subjects. Yeah. <laughs> and I've yeah, just written sure. two books. 
Um, but I did want to still combine, you know, what I've been able to create an audience for and, and create sort of my niche and, and both those, those two disparate subjects, if you will. And starting at the butcher made a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And I was no longer bound by one cooking method of low and slow or hot and fast, but now it opened up this whole world of barbecue, grilling, raw, roasted, fried, and a slew of ingredients and some incredible people. Yeah, I, I think that that's what is uh, most fascinating about the way you have uh, put the the book together is that it's it's not your typical hey here's a here's a recipe and it's just a recipe from this place I mean there there's a little bit of that but there is there's something uh, really deeply kind of moving and has such an incredible uh, kind of time and place that you're able to take us to these different places uh, which you do throughout the book you know you you travel to butchers literally all around the world. Um, you know, what were, what were some of the things that kind of, that you learned specifically, you come from a line of butchers, but some of those things you learned specifically as you started to engage with these guys because you were all over the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, first and foremost, I actually felt better about the first introductory line of the book. You know, this is not a book about butchering per se. It's about the butcher because the truth of the matter is trying to learn how to butcher from reading a book is, is right. Yeah, you know, it's probably something you can do. Uh, folks go to school, but the vast majority of folks, when I go out, it, it came from apprenticeship and it came from learning and it came from uh, time, energy, and repetition. And so uh, I think more than anything, we do start off the book with what I call kind of a butchering primer. And this is also an idea that came to me during uh, the pandemic, because when we would all go to the store, you know, you you throw up all of your gear and you go looking for uh, things to feed your family. And it would shock me because I'd come home and I'd have whole chickens, I'd have beef ribs, I've had London broil and all these things. I love to cook, yeah. but nobody was picking them up because they were sourcing things that, you know, were, were more traditional for them. Yeah. And so... That was another area where I thought, like, still people don't know how to break down a whole chicken. You know, they don't know how to trim a proper tenderloin when it comes to the holiday season or fillet of fish. And so I wasn't trying to put the butchers out of business by, you know, writing a book on on my technique of butchering because that's not my expertise. Rather, it is the storytelling. It is going and sort of inviting you or the reader to kind of sit in the right seat uh, on a 500-mile drive or in the right seat in my 1976 Piper Cherokee at 4,000 feet as we're pummeling up to Cambridge City, Indiana, to tell the stories. And, you know, the commonality that I shared is that it's a tough job. You know, there's a lot of hard work. There's a ton of pride. It's a job of service. Um, The butcher is somebody that's always constantly giving, you know, and that was sort of the parallel of uh, the introduction. My grandfather served in World War II uh, prior to, you know, coming back and and settling at the family store. And, And you and I walk into a butcher shop and, you know, butcher shops are they're changing. They're becoming super hyper into dry aging or into specialty cuts or maybe the unknown. But there's also the local butcher that's also at your supermarket too and has kind of a different role. But at the end of the day, you're asking for them to serve whatever you're asking for. Do you have this in stock? Do you know where I can find this? Hey, I see this, but do you mind trimming it this way or could you cut it this way or I only need a quarter pound of that? And then ultimately, I think the best line for the butcher is that they're probably the most underpaid cookbook writers or chefs because everyone says, how do you cook this? <laughs> yeah. You know, you talk about the butcher shops. I, I, I cook a lot. I cook proteins a ton. I, I find even myself that I'm intimidated sometimes when I walk in to a butcher that I feel if I go into a, a butcher shop, that's 
uh, that that's what they do. Uh, that if I ask them something, I feel like I, I'm intim- am I going to say it the right way? Uh, do you, through the process, did you find the folks that you talk to when people like me walk in intimidated, you know, were they, were they received with, with care? I, it's almost like I want to, I want to like give people almost permission to go into the butcher shop and ask, ask some of these questions. Uh, because I think so often we just sit back and we're, we'll just go in and we'll grab the prepackaged thing that's in the shelf. We won't ask the question. We won't say, can, can I have this smaller? Can you cut this into thicker steaks for me? I feel like I'm causing them work, but I may be the reverse. They may be eager to do it. I think for the mass supermarket, really what it did is it, it distracted a human relationship that I'm trying to bring back in this book, right? It's fostering that, that sense of community, that sense of trust, right? The butcher is also in business. So they're wanting to sell you a good product and they'll often give you the advice so that you have a great result so that you return for business. Yep. You know, in the supermarket, um, you're exactly right. Things typically back in the day in the 60s and 70s, they were still receiving sides of beef and butchering in-house. And it was sort of that kind of locality that it was known for. Ultimately, uh, we feature uh, a butcher just right down the road from me at East Nashville at the Kroger Market. And he's not probably cutting a whole lot of meat, but he's out there on the floor and he's talking to people and it's his own version of church. You know, I think there is a level of intimidation with some shops. Um, we went to, to Vincent's meat market in the, in the Bronx and yeah. listen, anywhere you go in New York, if you don't know your stuff, you're going to you get out of here. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I think that's what I'm really trying to convey here is that you've got these incredible folks that are artisans and they want to sell you good product and it brings them a ton of joy and they're working their tail off to source it, to dry age it, to create specialty cuts. And I do think it's a chance to foster a friendship and community and a place that you can go when you've got, you know, somebody coming over, uh, my first book was called Have Her Over for Dinner. And, you know, if you're looking to impress, I want to go to the butcher and say, hey, man, this is the this is the cut. It's not something that's in cellophane. This is something I cut by hand and it's going to be, you know, that much better because of the way that I've treated it and because I've gone through this certain process. So I think it's a very opening environment. You you talk about going to Vincent's. Uh, you visited somebody in, in France, um, but you also picked... Tommy here in Nashville, right? Tommy, is that? Yeah, that? Tommy Kelly. Yeah, Tommy Kelly uh, here in Nashville. So what made you include him? Because as I was kind of thumbing through this, that was what really kind of caught my eye and really made me really stop and, and read. I wanted to avoid the stigmatism that, you know, the butcher shop sort of in a in a very high-end food scene that only it could be afforded by those that can go out and buy you know, very expensive cuts or really long dry aged meats. I mean, at the end of the day, we're creatures of convenience and I happen to be one too. Um, most of the recipes that I've featured throughout my books have come through time and circumstance, right? I'm still a dad of two and I'm trying to put dinner on the table. So there's a lot of weeknight friendly meals and there are items on the the weekends where I like to break out, you know, a smoker and a grill and everything else that I have and, and try to experiment. And so, um, at the same time, you know, I hop on my bike in, in East Nashville and I've got a lot of options from where I can go, including my friends at Porter Road who also assisted me in the uh, the priming session yep. on, on what you can butcher at home. But, you know, Tommy's just one of those guys that um, I, I've known him for years kind of casually more from the effort of shopping. And when I was seeking, you know, where do I want to go? Where do I want to travel? How do I want to represent this book? And how do I cast 
as wide of a net as possible. And you mentioned this earlier, I'm writing books. This is not social media. You know, it, yeah. it's something that's going to stand the test of time. And it's sort of a slice of right, life right now. Um, and that's super important to me. There's a big responsibility. And so, um, you know, I broached Tommy about the idea and he kind of laughed. He was like, man, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, this is just my job. But that's kind of the sort of the gentle character that, you know, it's just so pure. And, you know, that was an incredible afternoon that I've taken somebody that I see probably four times a day because I'm always at the grocery store. Um, but to take it to the next level and like, who are you? You know, what are the things that are important to you? And, and how does food shape that? And why are you here? And as it turns out, the guy lives like an hour away from that store, but yeah. that is his place. It is his community. And he's willing to make that daily sacrifice to serve others. Yeah, it was it was a great little just picture, you know, as, as I'm reading it, I can, I can hear his voice. Uh, I also love the way, uh, your daughter kind of described, uh, him and, uh, that you guys would greet each other by saying, Hey brother, you know, which is a common, common thing. I think more in the South, just like, Hey brother. And, uh, and just that she was like, that you were going to see your brother. I can't remember exactly how she, yeah, she we laughed because Tommy and I were like, we're not, we're not, not brothers. I mean, that's pretty clear. Yeah. But, uh, you know, she laughed and, and said, no, y'all are, y'all are cooking brothers. And I think at the time she was five years old. So the mind of a child is, uh, is fantastic. And, you know, now it's almost a bit like a family when we go there is, uh, they're excited to see Mr. Tommy. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the first places in the book, uh, that you talk about is, uh, Cambridge, Indiana, I believe. Cambridge city, Cambridge city. Um, and you mentioned here just a moment ago that you, you flew up there. You are a pilot as well. Uh, how often do you, how many of these did you fly to? Um, for this book, at least a quarter of them. So okay. three or four, um, it, it always changes. We've been doing it. Uh, Andrea Behrens has shot the last three books, uh, with me and she's a photographer based here in Nashville. And I think she's, uh, she's like a sister to me and she makes everything we do look awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I'm so lucky to have her. And uh, for this book season, you know, we, we were starting our planning and, and she kind of whispered in my ear. She said, well, I just want to let you know that um, I said, I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> she says, yeah, you know, we're, uh, we're expecting. And so um, you're like, we, hey, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, I was like, that's going to throw a bit of a wrench into the planning. Um, but we wanted to have that time for it to be super special. So what we did is we kind of preloaded the, the, the book and we took um, the opportunity to go out to, I think three, three locations before, uh, before her baby, uh, baby bear, as he's known came. And, uh, that was one of the first trips. I remember I said, listen, it's about a five and a half hour drive or about an hour and a half in the plane, but you're four months pregnant. I have no idea. And the weather's not that great. Yeah. She says, I want to fly. <laughs> yeah, let's go. And, uh, so we did that. And then, um, we were in Chinatown in San Francisco and we were literally shooting the food on the street, on crates, styling with stuff that we had picked up at trading companies. Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, I'm not doing this to you anymore. I was like, we're going to take the break here and enjoy that precious time. Um, and she did. And then Bear came out on the road and uh, I think got executive platinum status on American Airlines Good pretty quickly from uh, the rest of our travels. Oh, man, that's great. So how long have you been flying? Um, I've been flying... Um, I guess since 2013, so almost 10 years. Yeah. Uh, what what attracted you to that? What made you say, I want to, you know what? I'm going to fly now. I have a bunch of weird 
interests and businesses and disparate <laughs> traits. And I think it comes from um, my best friend growing up, a, a guy named R.C. Hux. Uh, he should be a comedian and everybody should know him, but he's probably too good at selling cars like his father was. And his father, Richard, um, you know, there was, uh, wasn't a day that I wouldn't spend the night at R.C.'s house. And the next morning we wake up and we go fishing. We go to a flea market and you know, buy baseball cards. And then he would rebuild T-34s. He had a hangar uh, in Gwinnett County in Atlanta, Georgia. We'd fly a plane around. Uh, we'd go eat at some dive, you know, honky-tonk. And then that night he'd reload uh, bullets for his, you know, <laughs> his hunting rifles. And so that was just a day in the life with Richard. So yeah. to me, I was exposed to general aviation pretty early on. Okay. And uh, my family still lives uh, outside Atlanta um, in Greensboro, Georgia. And I remember uh, one day we had a uh, Nashville got the essential air service where they had a little Cessna caravan that would fly between Nashville and Athens, Georgia, and it was subsidized by the government. And it was amazing because we go down the lake and we didn't have kids. It was a weekend thing. And I loved it. I looked at my wife and I said, if they ever cancel this, I'm going to get my pilot's license. They canceled it in a September and by October I was doing flight training. Nice. Really? So it was just, uh, yeah, the Lord said, yeah, you need to fly. We'll, we'll, we'll make a way. We'll cancel this. A little service. It'll be, it'll be great. Um, just, uh, I, I'd love to hear just some of the, you met, what is it? Is it like 12, 13 different, uh, I think, yeah. uh, butchers, um, maybe just kind of share a couple that kind of stand out as you look back. It's I'm not going to say pick your favorite, but, uh, you know, some of the unique ones, uh, to me, you know, obviously Tommy, I thought was just, just such a great story. Um, but, uh, would love to hear just kind of, as you look back at this book, it just maybe some of those special moments where you just thought, I can't believe I get to do this, get to write this story and get to share this with, with the world. Yeah. I mean, I always get asked this question because I've been following a pretty similar format. Um, in South's Best Butts, we had yeah. 12 states that make up the barbecue belt. I know there's a lot of debate about the sure. states, right? But that's what we followed. And, um, you know, there's a lot of power behind the number 12. That's, something we followed up in Serial Griller and then ultimately for for Butcher as well. You know, to go back to the flying piece, um, two of the folks that I've met that have been featured in my books have all been because American Airlines could not get me home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, first one was Michael Solomonoff up at Zahav in Philadelphia, James Beard, best chef in America, and one of the hardest restaurants in the world to get into. Yeah. And I got in at the bar and we met and we became friends and we're still friends and I'm trying to figure out a way that he can take me to Israel uh, on that food tour. But uh, the second one was uh, Vince DeSalvo in Williamsport, PA. So trying to fly out of Williamsport where actually the Lycoming engine that's in my plane is made. And uh, it's just one of those nights where you're just trying to get home and you're tired, you're hung up wet. And I think the first line of the book is a, a mentor used to tell me that you know, whenever you call your spouse from the road and you say, how's it, how's it going? You say the weather's terrible and there's nothing good to eat. You know, you just create the excuse. But yeah. the truth is I had been to this unbelievable family run Italian restaurant, um, kind of tucked away from downtown. And I was sitting at the bar and having a drink and just chatting, um, uh, kind of about hunting and fishing and didn't realize I was talking to chef Vince and, uh, he was not dressed in his whites. It was a casual day because they had um, unfortunately he had lost his father, you know, the week prior. And so just kind of sharing some stories, he started ringing out charcuterie. We might've had a bourbon that led into another one. And, yeah. uh, it was just kind of a special moment. And I had, I had business that was kind of recurring and I would, I would revisit, um, his, his place. And, 
quite honestly, I was almost done uh, writing the book because I'm just traveling and sort of letting things happen organically. And it just kind of dawned on me. I was driving down I-65 one day and I was like, man, Vince, you know, he, he used to, he used to butcher these hogs and create this prosciutto and copa and all. Mm -hmm. So I called him and you know, immediately, what are you doing? I said, man, I'm writing this book about butchering. I said, when was the last time that you, you butchered a hog? He said, not, not since my dad passed. I said, call your son, call your family, whoever it is. I was like, I'll pay from the fly up to PA, but let's get together. And it was just an incredible uh, experience to be able to spend that kind of time with him and kind of just revive, I think, a bit of a, a family tradition that he sort of needed an excuse to go out and do again. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was also really struck by um, a lady named Karen Bell in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My wife's from um, just outside Milwaukee, and um, she's a formally trained chef and had traveled all over the world, lived in Spain, lived in Venezuela. I kind of made a joke that maybe she worked for the CIA. <laughs> but, um, you know, at the end of the day, she came back to to home and, and wanted to create kind of a, a whole animal butcher shop. Um, ultimately, to do that without any experience, she hired a, a gentleman that used to work at the old A&P grocery store when they used to bring in whole right. animals and butcher. And so she learned the trade, but she kind of found out that in order to sell a lot of the things that she wanted to sell, she kind of had to go back to her restaurant roots and create a restaurant on the side because a lot of people were coming in for the basics, fillets and strips and ribeyes, yep. but they weren't buying a lot of the alternative cuts. And so she started putting things like a corned beef tongue Reuben on her menu and you have millennials on TikTok, you know, losing their mind, yeah. never eating all this amazing food. And that's a trend actually. So Karen, just an incredible... I think just a, a great representation of the evolving nature of the demographics of the trade. Um, but that's actually kind of a, a, a longstanding tradition. I have a business in the south of France. I've spent a lot of time there. And kind of the secret is the best meals in France are actually at the butcher shop because they make a, a plat du jour. It's, it's a, a plate, it's of, the plate of the day. And it's something that typically maybe they've broken down, you know, a whole animal that day and they're going to make a stew. And they're going to serve it with some couscous or whatever. And that's what you take home. The French aren't going through McDonald's drive throughs They're going to the butcher shop oh, okay. and finding these kind of you know, quick yeah. uh, meals to go. And I think that is something that I also really wanted to represent, not only because of my time traveling, but it's a trend now that I'm seeing here in the United States is that butcher shops are also typically now adding some sort of element either to go or restaurant mm -hmm. so that they can supplement the business. Yeah. Uh, it does seem... And I wonder if it's a fad because there does seem to be this resurgence in the butcher shop, you know, like here in, in middle Tennessee, we, you know, one of the, the leading ones, you, you mentioned them earlier, uh, Porter road, those guys kind of started about 10 years ago. I feel like they were on the early, early side of this resurgence, but it, it feels like if you go to any larger cities, or even down in spring Hill, where I'm from, there's a, there's a local butcher just in, in Spring Hill now, and that wasn't there. Uh, Columbia had one, it, it didn't work. But so uh, is that something that you, you're finding as well is that this is kind of coming back and that that other kind of added part of the business might help them sustain and stay in business uh, like your, your friend in Milwaukee discovered? Yeah, so I mean, I'm a huge proponent of believing that it's a, it's a resurgence that we're seeing and partially that is, I think, due to the fact of the pandemic where people, you know, maybe didn't have access to supply and then thought, wow, you know, I, we don't even have a butcher in this town. Yeah. I wish we did. 
And so I think there's some creative business models. You know, the guys from Porter Road, I think, are a great example where they've taken almost kind of the old school vertical integration. Um, Jared, who is one of the co-founders there, I mean, he gave me a great quote. He said, I'm a butcher and I tell people to, to eat less meat. Yeah. But I want them to eat better meat. And there's an old saying, especially writing cookbooks, that I have probably overused too much in my books, that a meal is only as good as your ingredients. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes, um, even if it is a touch more in terms of expense, um, you know, paying for that additional ingredient, it means that you probably don't have to to mess with it too much and let it be. And, and you may actually spend less on the entire meal because you've sourced a really, really good quality piece of, of protein or in, in the instance that we go down the rabbit hole of vegetable butchering as well. But you know, I think um, I think there is a resurgence. I think people want to be connected to their food, and I think people want to also be connected to that sense of community. And if there's anything that I would say about the local butcher shop, you know, historically they are going to specialize in certain items that you can only find there, right? So for my my grandfather, um, his brother would make kind of the house spiced sausages, and there was an array of those, and there was always a Saturday morning kind of country sausage, right? And so you could only source that there. They would specialize in alternative cuts. And I will tell you one thing that we went and visited in Enterprise, Alabama. You may not think that you have a local butcher, but, you know, there's the carniceria. There's the halal style kind of Middle Eastern shops. Yep. And sometimes that's some of the best places to source because they're still, as we say in New York, fabricating. Uh, they're still cutting the meat in-house. And so that might not be something that's typically on your radar, but it's a fantastic place to source, you know, fresh cuts and also alternative cuts. And then the last piece too, especially is ground ground meats, right? What do we do with these? And and honestly, if you've never had fresh ground, you know, especially beef, pork, chicken, lamb, it, it, it's a whole different ball game from your local butcher because that's really where you're getting your bang for the buck because they may have really expensive dry age cuts that they are actually throwing into that blend that you're just not going to get from that, you know, frozen or commercial market. So that's that's kind of a pro tip. That's your gateway gateway drug into butcher <laughs> shops is go get their fresh ground. Yeah, and I, I spend and a lot. It always of changes. Yeah, you know, yeah, what you get this week may be different because of some of those cuts that may or may not be. Absolutely, you go to Porter Road, and I mean they've got it, it's going to look different every single time. Yeah. Um, and ground beef is kind of the hero all star. Like I said, every night I have to come home and cook for my kids, and uh, there's a lot of recipes without using hamburger helper that you can turn out a 30 minute meal that's yeah. super nutritious and satisfying and it, it feeds the family. So that's a, that's a topic that I, I tackle ground beef and quite a few recipes. Yeah. And of course you can substitute with turkey, chicken, lamb, bison, you know, elk, whatever you might have, venison. Um, but that's just one of those items that I think was worth, uh, going and seeking out a local butcher. Yeah. It, it sounds like you had some amazing meals along the way here. Uh, the one that did give me pause uh, was, it's, it sounds like uh, Cambridge, Indiana, Cambridge City is all I talk about, but it is uh, what uh, where you said you were stopped in your tracks uh, when Jerry at uh, Rim Foods in Indiana, and can you describe what that was? Because it stopped me in my tracks too, because I was like, that doesn't sound very good. You've given a nice harbinger to here for the listener because it wasn't the whole hogshead taco and it wasn't the the sweet bread yeah. steamed in beer. Um, you know, I typically do not arrive on site with a whole lot of research and I really don't come with any expectations. 
and really prefer never to look at a menu because I just kind of want the time and the moment. Okay. And so we were hanging out in Cambridge City enjoying hogshead tacos. If you've never had it, they're delicious. There's so much meat in the hogshead and you can smoke the whole thing and um, just having a great time. And it was a little bit later in the evening and Jerry kind of mentioned, you know, just some of the harder days that they have is when they're they're actually processing, you know, maybe several animals because they do whole animal butchery and just working the line. He said something, I don't even have time to eat lunch. So what I do is, you know, a lot of people don't want the tail trimmings or the ribeyes or the strip steaks. And we just kind of carve out that little pearl. And I, I, I throw it in a bucket of Worcestershire and then I slap it on some bread and I eat it. And I stopped and I said, whoa, where's that? Yeah. And he kind of looked at me and, you know, I was already a little bit funny coming in from Nashville, uh, Cambridge City. He said, would you like some? I said, yeah, that's why I'm here. So he drove up to the plant, went and trimmed, you know, a couple pieces, came back with a big solo cup of Worcestershire. And it's just steak tips that he's just soaked with a toothpick and man, smoky, tender, just everything you've ever dreamed of. And that's, that's why I'm writing books. Yeah. You know, it's those bites that just kind of stop. You've never had something like that. And for me, it's even better because two ingredients, a super simple recipe to oh, write. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was, we often get confused by thinking in order for it to be good, it has to be complicated, has to be several ingredients. And in looking through this book, a lot of these are not overly complicated. You know, you look at the the list of ingredients and it may be three, four, five. I mean, there's there's not these recipes that contain eight, 10, 12 for the most part. There's there's a there's a few outliers, but I think at the the majority of them, the places you went, the ingredients are very simple. Yeah, I mean, this is my fifth cookbook. Um you're only as good as your last book, according to your publisher. But I go back to living here in Nashville, a single guy, um, you know, over 10 years ago and, and writing this book called Have a River for Dinner. And and a lot of the things that caused me to write that book and self-publish that book and pursue this path, you know, at that time, uh, I guess the Food Network was still doing like real 30-minute episodes. It wasn't all TikTok-based where you watch a recipe in 30 seconds. And a lot of my friends didn't know how to cook and they were more frustrated because they went online or they watched the show and they were going to make the ultimate lasagna and they went out and they bought all the ingredients. They spent $120 and they messed it up and it wasn't that good. And they said, Psh, I'm done with the I'm cooking. Done. For me, it's sort of like stocking, you know, the the pantry and the fridge with some of the basics, a good olive oil, nice vinegars, you know, some salts, some peppers, and then, you know, an array of different spices, if you will. And then maybe go procure two or three ingredients and let the ingredients speak for themselves. Yeah. So, I will always kind of rein myself in, even on book five, and say, like, would you have put this in the original book? Because a lot of my audience is still coming to me saying, like, these are, are foolproof recipes. They're well-tested. They're well-thought-out. I'm not having to go out and source a ton of ingredients, but I'm going to try to find the best quality I can. And at the end of the day, I'm trying to bring more people into the kitchen, and more importantly, more people that are sharing food with others. And so that's sort of my responsibility as as someone who's writing these books, is I want them to be well used, tattered, stained, and torn. I was at you know Barnsley Gardens, I think, last summer hosting kind of a, a cookout, uh, sort of a pit master. And this couple came up to me, and they brought a Southern Gentleman's Kitchen, which was my second book. And they had the um, the pork uh, tenderloin recipe was sort of a blueberry kind of sauce. And they literally had, I think, um, like 30 dates that they had made it along with people that they ate it with and the occasion. And like, I mean, I just took a picture. I was like, this is the entire reason I need a little motivation. I think my manuscript was due. And I was like, I'm going to go back and write 
because of this moment, because thank you. Like that's a, that's a big thing for me to be able to see that you're creating your own memories from those recipes. You know, you, I guess this is a cookbook, right? I mean, like it is, but it, it feels like it's so much more because of the, the people that I met along the way. You describe it as a cookbook. Is that the way you tell people? Well, my editor and my wife will tell you that I'm not William Faulkner. Um, so yeah, they're cookbooks. <laughs> you know, listen, I'm going to defend you. I, I think you gave me such a, like a just defined time and place that as I'm reading these descriptions of where you're walking into, uh, you know, I felt as if I was walking in, uh, to that little butchery in, in France and, and seeing, uh, and meeting those two, two guys that, you know, took a, giant risk and moved to France and decided to do that, which in of itself feels like a book, uh, there, but it really, it, I think that's what surprised me most about this book is just that the ability you have to take us to a time and place. Yeah. I mean, I want it to be, as I mentioned, a weeknight friendly cookbook, you know, minimal ingredients, really simple ideas and and processes that I follow to put dinner rather quickly on the table. At the same time, I wanted to be a Saturday morning with a cup of coffee and say, I want to go to Chinatown in San Fran or to Antibes in the south of France or to Milwaukee or to the Bronx. And, you know, you mentioned it. It's it's my take. Um, I take a lot of uh, responsibility and the fact that I may be meeting somebody for typically a 24-hour period and I'm sort of being tasked with telling I wouldn't say their entire family background, but sort of a, you know, the reason why they are there. And and then also the observations that I'm picking up on and sort of kind of a, almost like a a Paul Harvey kind of vignette to kind of close out a story of just, you know, what I think. And um, Uh, for those of you younger people, Paul Harvey (laughs) was a radio talk shows years ago uh, who would tell these just really engaging stories and end with uh, what that's the rest of the story. So back back to you. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. That's. That's sort of, you know, part of my influence. In fact, I didn't even know that my grandfather and great uncle, that's all they listened to was Paul Harvey in the old uh, supermarket in, in Valdosta, Georgia. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's part travel, it's it's part cookbook, and, and it's it's sort of kind of a, a bit of a biopic on, on a lot of the folks as well. Was there any, any surprising lessons these people taught you? Uh, you know, you kind of mentioned that they were maybe underpaid or, you know, hardworking uh, but was there was there another common thread that you might say this was surprising or I think most folks um will take piece of meat butcher and New Orleans, Louisiana, which you can't come up with a better name than piece of meat, right? And um You know what you're gonna get. <laughs> uh I can't write a cookbook without going to New Orleans. Um Louisiana in general is just such an inspiring place for me and uh, you have two folks, uh, Leanne and, and Daniel, that uh, were probably more on the rising star chef train, if you will, mm-hmm. um, working with Donald Link at Cochon and, and doing all these different things. But ultimately, they decided that they actually wanted to dial it back and get more into the the building blocks and uh, take on a harder job with less pay and, and really less notoriety and, and maybe even less fun, even though I would say that they're turning that on their head. So I think ultimately um, that that quality of service that you see throughout, um, it's a, a steady and, and stable place to be. A lot of it is, is family and generational. The thing that I would say, you know, for a lot of folks that are 
kind of saying, all right, you know, is this a book about butchering? No, it's a general cookbook. And I guarantee if you say back in your family tree, there's an uncle, a brother, an aunt, or a cousin, or somebody that was a butcher. And it was something in my family that my uncle decided to become a banker. And here I am, uh, the next generation kind of picking it up. And I'm not a butcher, but I'm still talking about it. And I'm waxing poetically on the trade. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not in there in the trenches on a daily basis. And I've seen those folks that are. And I think they they carry a lot of uh, pride and, and um, they honor the work. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's an incredible way to make a living. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, do you think, you know, you're saying there's a there's a resurgence in, in butcher shops. Uh, is there... Is there worry for the future or are you or are you more encouraged now after your your trips? Yeah, I, I would say I'm encouraged, especially the trends that I see in the US. And I think what you're gonna end up seeing is a lot of the concepts of probably a smaller butcher shop next to a restaurant rather than a butcher shop with a small restaurant to go. I mean, you look at Europe, I mean specifically at France, um, you know, going to the patisserie and the uh, boucherie and all these different places that you're traveling to, that was that's a traditional method, they say, fairly course, which is kind of make the, the housekeeping, the, the shopping. And they are starting to get these things called the supermarchés. And as an American, you're kind of putting your face in the palm saying, no, don't do it. Don't, don't do, it. do it. Don't go down that path, even though it's so convenient. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's sort of a point also that I wanted to visit with Tommy at Kroger. I mean, Kroger's not a locally owned supermarket. Right. But it doesn't take away from the fact that there's some really incredible people that are supporting the local constituents mm-hmm. on a daily basis. So it's a give and take. Um, but I do think having awareness, having butchers tell you that we should be eating less of a product they're trying to sell, but right. more quality. Yep. Um, and I would just encourage folks that they don't need to be intimidated. Seek it out. You may not think you have one, but it may be in a store like a carniceria, which is even more intimidating. But if you go in there, you're going to find really passionate people that have an eye to service and they are giving a piece really of their work to you and they want the best results and you can ask them, how do you cook it? Yeah. And at the end of the day, we also have to remember that, that we're helping provide a living when it's a service they're providing. Uh, you know, it's a, it's part of a, a ritual uh, that allows them to keep doing that and keep having a job that they're passionate about. Um, we, we share, uh, we share something in common. We're both, Dad, girls, uh, you've got two two little girls. Uh, where did you meet your wife? Oh man, this is a long one. Okay, <laughs> I love I love hearing these stories though. I, lo- I love hearing that. Uh, I actually met her in Nashville. Okay, um, she was uh, living in New York, hosting television, and uh, my my roommate in college um, was uh, was the one that actually kind of set us up. Because my book, Have Her Over for Dinner, had come out and uh, through friends of friends um, just said, hey, y'all should meet. She was hosting, I think, a show down here for like CMT, maybe Can You Duet or something okay. at the time. This is this is around the time of the flood. I remember that. Okay. And I suggested, hey, let's let's just meet for a cocktail. Um, and at that time, Patterson House had opened. I, was, and I had no idea what Patterson House was, but that's what everybody talked about. This was different Nashville, right? Like yep. that was a big deal. There was it a was. new bar that was Patterson House and Catbird Seat up top. I mean, yeah. that was... Yeah, that was the first for Nashville in both of those in both regards, really. It really was dedicated cocktail establishment doing high end craft cocktails, and then Catbird Seat, thirty seat, you know, live action. Great place, still a great place. Yes, yeah. I did what any man should do. I, I forgot my wallet, um, and I walked in, and I kind of looked around, and I, I was like, "Whoa, I, I, that's 
that's definitely not her. Um, and then it was her. And I was like, whoa, man, I am outgunned, outmanned, and broke. And uh, ultimately, my friend uh, Buster Faulkner, um, he was the uh, offensive coordinator at MTSU. He was in town visiting. He's now uh, offensive coordinator at Georgia Tech. And I called Buster. I said, man, he was our quarterback in high school. I was like, I need a favor, bro. I need you to drop my wallet off. And uh, within like five minutes, she was like, well, I'm leaving from New York and I just got out of a relationship and I'm going to Los Angeles. And that was sort of a, a not a great moment. You know, I'm like, I've just met uh, my dream weaver here. Was it like nice to meet you? <laughs> let me tell you this. Or was it like after two co- cocktail in, you know, um, and she was like, just take it easy. This isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I had the old fashioned feeling and uh, chased her out to L.A. and pursued it. And we were engaged in a year. Uh, after dating long distance and then um, ultimately got married. Uh, she moved to Nashville about a week before we got married and we celebrated 10 years in January. Congratulations. Thank you. And then two girls, what are their ages? Uh, they are about to be, I'll say it right now, and um, you said time and place and stamp. They are seven and five, but in T minus like one week and three weeks, they will be six and eight. Okay. <laughs> so their birthdays are super close together. Super close. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, probably good and bad. Yeah, it's a you know it's it's a trend that the the birthday parties come and and they go and the heartache that starts for me that it's another year that's gone by is, is something I'm dealing with in the current moment. Yeah, those are sweet ages. Those really are. Yeah, uh, they they love uh, love a lot of time with parents and a lot of a lot of snuggles and yeah. I took them on their first uh, camping trip this weekend. San's mom, daddy daughter weekend. Okay. Of course, we were the the group that was bringing uh, steak kebabs and you know Mediterranean pasta salads. <laughs> uh, what did they think about camping? Do they like camping? They loved it, and my whole goal was that I wanted them to go again. And as we were pulling out, and they were sort of rolling their eyes because they truly didn't sleep based on the excitement and probably a touch of fear. They said, "When can we go again?" So okay. I think I did my job. Nice. Yeah. Good work. Um, well, uh, you know we. Would love to just kind of know, uh, you know, what's what's next for you. You know, I know it's it's like let me just get this book out, but you know, it sounds like you're there's a little bit of serial entrepreneur in you, I think, uh, and you obviously are very good at writing cookbooks. Uh, so what's next? Good question. Um, I don't have per se the idea of of next book, and and hopefully I have the opportunity to do another one. But a lot of things have to transpire between now and then for that to take place. Um, another exciting thing, I, I actually did a a series for the new LG network, which was called Taste of Tennessee, that we mm-hmm. debuted nice. um, last fall, and so we went to Slumin' Huskies and, and shot with those guys and with Pat Martin and. Um, then we, you know, traveled and, and continued to evolve that with uh, the guys from Party Foul for uh, Hot Chicken. And so they just renewed that for another season. So we're going to do five episodes and we're right. going to go outside of Nashville. We'll travel to East Tennessee to Memphis and uh, kind of all around. So I think that's going to be a really nice uh, break from uh, right. the book creativity point. But essentially all I'm doing is the same thing with the camera following me is I'm meeting people and basically trying to pull out yeah. all the good stories and, and tips and techniques and recipes. But you know, I love um, I love that Nashville's home, and I love this state, and to be able to have um, that kind of a voice and, and share kind of my interpretation is a lot of fun. I've noodled on some ideas. Um, we visit this idea in um, Butcher on the Block, this idea of new vide uh, cooking, which is sort of a technique that I think would be maybe an interesting 
Okay. Subject to tackle for all the barbecue and grilling enthusiasts because everybody has an opinion in that world. Yeah. This is sort of an idea that I've been uh, sort of jonesing on for the past few years that came about naturally just because my wife is constantly inviting people over for dinner. Um, and so that's maybe a, a path that I might go down, but you know, I don't know. I, I didn't ever think I would write something related to my grandfather and story and butchering, and it just kind of came naturally. Most of my ideas come on long runs um, in the early mornings, and uh, that's what I'll pray for. Where, where did that passion of, of barbecue, where did it get born for you? Uh, was it always part of your kind of family, or was it something you discovered with your best friend, RC? Like, where, where did where did barbecue enter into your life? I mean, I grew up uh, suburb of Atlanta and was fortunate. My my family's from South Georgia. My dad's from Mississippi, and so I think barbecue is just a natural soundtrack of uh, of everything that you have here in the South. Um, within about the first year of getting married, uh, my wife told me what every everyone wants to hear, and that's, "Hey, honey, I'm pregnant." And then she followed that with, "And my my mom is moving to Nashville." And she then followed it with, and she's also going to live with us for a while. Okay. You can detect my sarcasm. <laughs> so I did what any responsible man would do is I went out and bought a ton of grills and smokers and uh, put on my George Costanza Gore-Tex jacket and convinced my wife and mother-in-law that time and temperature control were exceedingly hard to master. And I had to sit outside. I had to be outside all, all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every day to perfect my craft. Yeah. So that's really where I think a lot of the, uh, just the, the the confidence to be able to write on the subject, yeah. knowing and, and having that experience. Um, and it's also funny because my mother-in-law, the first uh, line of that book uh, she gave to me because we were staying up one night and similar to the butcher book, you know, what am I going to say? Why am I writing this book? Yeah. There's all these different opinions and all this. And she kind of had a glass of wine in her hand and she said, well, opinions are like everybody has one. And I said, great answer. That's the first line in the book. <laughs> um, so when you were growing up, you know, I grew up in Michigan. So our, our idea of barbecue was much different than what it was here in the South. It was, it was hot dogs. It was, it was hamburgers. And that's what we called barbecue. Very rarely did we have any, any large cuts. So growing up for you, was it the family had smokers and they were doing low and slow whole hog? Like, is that kind of what you grew up around a little bit? Yeah. So my dad was in the cattle business. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. One of the ways that you get people to come buy cows is you cook barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> one of the ways you have political rallies, all the, yeah. all that Southern tradition. So I'm glad you brought that up because um, I am always perplexed when people say we're having a barbecue and it's not, I mean, for me, slow roasted pork. I mean, barbecue to me, the cornerstone of barbecue to me is pork. Yeah. Obviously, no offense to Texas and Oklahoma for for the beef or Kentucky for the mutton. Yeah. Uh, but really, that's the cornerstone. So my wife is from Milwaukee and I remember one of the first summers that we went back to Milwaukee, they kept talking about this barbecue, barbecue, barbecue. And I showed up and I'm excited about a pork sandwich, probably worried that there's going to be some sort of sweet sugary sauce on it, but I'm cool. Yeah. Uh, sans sauce. And I show up and it's, you know, it's burgers and brats and cheese curds, which is totally cool. Right. But you're, but it's not barbecue. You, right. you know? So that's let's cookout. call it. That's like you're grilling out or you're cooking out. And yeah. so truthfully, go back to the, uh, the essence of this book. When I wrote South's Best Butts, that was a book about barbecue. When I wrote Cereal Griller, that was a book about grilling. Yep. 
Um, so I think there is some some connotation language. But for Southerners, we're always confused when you're putting hot dogs and hamburgers on the on the grill and you're calling it a barbecue. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So really, this this is a perfect blending. You you go back DNA, dad in the cattle business, barbecue part of your your growing up, butchers in your in your lineage. Like there is this this is a perfect book for you. So yeah, I it kind of fell into place um like i said i had no um interest quite honestly until maybe um fall of of 2020 um coming off the release of of serial griller and was super fortunate that uh it also was a fantastic book and when i got asked hey what's next um you know, long runs and prayer. And, uh, I think I was actually just sitting around the family home around the holidays when it sort of, sort of kind of dawned on me. Um, maybe that's the, the new window and it allows me to combine a lot of the things I love barbecuing and grilling travel, interesting people, you know, the butchers is as interesting as a grill master and pit master, if not maybe more interesting. And then also the cool thing is that the art of butchering permeates every culture and every cuisine, right? Barbecue may be a little bit more limited. Grilling, probably more vast, right? Yep. But butchering exists in all. And so that's a big part for me too is because, you know, we did travel to France, but man, in the U.S., we're so fortunate that everybody comes from somewhere else. And one of the things they bring is their food. And so that allows us to capture, um, you know, a, a diverse uh, range of cuisines and, and people and cultures, yeah. which I think is really important to highlight. For sure. Well, um, the conversation has been great. We we do kind of end with uh, a little bit of a fixed question section here. Uh, obviously, the May the Smoke Be With You, uh, you know, our little name has ties to, to Star Wars. So always have to ask if you're a Star Wars fan. Oh, don't hate me. It's okay. Never seen it. Okay. <laughs> I think at this point, it's almost like a pride thing. Yeah, it's, it, that's Titanic for me. Okay, I've never seen Titanic, and I don't think I ever ever want to. And people are just just flabbergasted by that. I've also never seen The Godfather. Oh man, which is which is kind of that's that's more embarrassing than Titanic. Titanic. Yeah. Hey, listen, but listen, I fly my Piper to Gatlinburg to go to the Titanic Museum, so that's how Titanic crazy I am. Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. So, uh, so really the next two questions about favorite moving character, we won't go there cause, uh, you, you really, it, it matters nothing to you. I tripped you up there. It's okay. It's all right. So when you're, when you're outside and, uh, mother-in-law's over and you are donning your Gore-Tex and just monitoring that temperature like crazy, uh, what, what are you, uh, what are you drinking when you're out there? Something domestic, light, and cold. I think Dirk Spindley said it best. You know, I'm not like a, a fancy drinker. Um, yeah, maybe uh, a Miller Lite. Uh, maybe that's my homage to my wife's uh, hometown of Milwaukee. Okay. There's something about it. Just easy. With the smoke, the easiness, not too filling. Yeah. Um, you know, I appreciate all the the, the different varietals of, of wine and bourbon and all the above. But at the end of the day, I'm probably a cold beer guy. Just a simple, simple, yeah. simple beer guy. Uh, what are you listening to when you're out there? Uh, the Grateful Dead. Okay. Really? okay. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, I mean, I live in Nashville. I'm surrounded by great music, and a lot of my friends are fantastic music, uh, musicians. I used to be a musician, but I often say, like, The Grateful Dead, it just keeps getting cooler, man. You can go down that rabbit hole and, uh, and that's all, all the recordings. All, all the, the recordings. And, all. and I'm not like some guy that's been to 50 shows. I just, I enjoy the musicianship. I enjoy the writing. I love the jams. And, um, 
yeah, it never it never gets old to me. It's always great in the background. All right. Um, we also like to ask just kind of a go to recipe for um, for ribs. So if you're going to go home this weekend, you're cooking pork ribs. Just your your technique and and what are you? How are you treating those ribs? I I'm going to probably go more on the country style rib route. If okay. that's okay with you, you can do it. Yeah, um, because you know for me. Uh, I love that cut. Historically coming from more of a pork shoulder is how I prefer for them to be prepared. Just super meaty. Um, I think it's really foolproof for a lot of folks because you've got a lot a lot of fat you know, running through that. Um, it's something that you can smoke typically for maybe an hour, hour and a half over indirect heat. I love the versatility of it because you can crutch it if you need to. If you want to pull out some more of that tenderness, you can sauce it if you want to. There's no harm, no foul. Or you can actually return it to the fire and kind of get that kind of crispy kind of bite. Um, and there's not often always going to be a bone in there. So yeah. my kids love it. It's super good for entertaining. And historically, I can get kind of that payoff that I'm looking for, maybe in a three-hour period. Whereas if I'm going to be using more of a, you know, kind of a St. Louis cut, it's preferred for me on ribs. Um, I'm going to try to, to have five hours to really do it the right way. I really don't want to cook ribs anywhere above 225 degrees. Okay. Um, that's that's always been my marker for ribs. Everything else, I'm I'm... I'm willing to maybe extend up to 250. Okay. Um, but really, ribs to me have to be very, very, very low and slow, always in direct heat. Um, I'm not someone who will crutch them per se by wrapping, yeah. um, because I do think that the delicateness of the rib starts to sort of implode upon itself. Um, yeah, you lose some of that texture. Yeah, I want yeah. bite off the bone quality. So yeah. I'd rather go a touch on the drier side. I don't want it to be dry, but I'd rather do that than have it, you know, kind of just fall apart in my Have hand. some integrity in there. Absolutely. Uh, so you are not, you're not a hot and fast guy at all then? Like you? For barbecue, no. Uh, for grilling, everything sure. that I want to promote is the Maillard reaction to occur. Of yeah. course, it can occur over longer periods of time at lower temperature. But yeah. um, when I'm grilling, I'm actually, that's the idea of Nuvid is actually taking things as hot as humanly possible. You know, I'm going to cook on maybe a Kamado style grill that I can get up to 700 degrees. I'm not going to be able to pull that off on a pellet grill. And I'm going to take a whole tenderloin and I'm going to undercook it. I'm going to cook it at six, 700 degrees over a hot fire. I'm going to maybe be turning it pretty often to, you know, not create the burn, but I want all that convection and the energy to get inside of it. And then I want to trap it like a pit master in a piece of foil and let it rest for three hours. Okay. And you're going to get edge to edge sear and mid-rare, if that's the temperature yep, you're looking all the way for, through. like sous vide, without having to stop your dinner party, say, excuse me, I've got to go sear off the steaks, okay. or the reverse sear where you're doing the same thing, yep. bringing it up, and then you're going out to sear it. You're having a good time, you're entertaining. And so there's a lot of um, utility to that method yeah. um, that's behind the scenes. So yeah, I mean, I'd say on the barbecue side, uh, Skip Steele's a pit master up at Bogart's. Um, I mean, he cooks his pork shoulder for 20 hours, 200 degrees. Okay. It yeah. takes 20 hours to bring that mass up to, to, 200 to 200 when you're cooking yeah. at 200, you know? Yeah. So uh, a lot of schools of thought around that. I think it's really fascinating. All right. So um, I, I think I might know where you're going to go with, with this answer. Uh, but if you could only eat one region of barbecue uh, for for the rest of your days... They could exist, and uh, but you could you could only eat this one region. What region would it be? Can I write it down and see if you're right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go here. I want you to tell me what you. Okay. Think. All right. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, here we go. So you can hear it. Uh, so let's 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 define the regions. Okay. Uh, you know, so we would have you know kind of uh, what we call like Texas Hill Country. Yep. Uh, kind of Kansas City style. Um, I'll put kind of a Memphis mm-hmm. style. Um, Kentucky, Carolina. Yep. Uh, Kentucky. That's that. That's the mutton. I'm gonna go mutton, which is sure, right? Um, I'd also go like um, coastal. You know, there's a lot of great things happening, like in in South Georgia. Okay. Okay. Um, and I would actually split the Carolinas, quite honestly. Okay. Yeah. You you spent enough time there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not getting in that arc. The Civil War. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, north and south. Okay, and that's we've done that very quickly. Louisiana is kind of its own thing, but it does yeah. fall into that Mississippi sort of some really great things. I'm not a huge sauce guy, but Mississippi. Yeah, there's always some of the best sauces coming out of Mississippi. Okay, okay. So um, I think I I I'm I don't I don't think it's it, it's not Texas, it's not Kansas City because you said you didn't want anything sweet. Um, I I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go Memphis. Okay. North Carolina. Yeah. All right. Whole hog. Whole hog. Okay. I want the whole hog because I want all of it. Uh, I'm not necessarily so much of a chop guy, but that's fine if they want to chop it all together because I think getting all the pieces together gives you a way yep. better, you know, if we're going to go on down the road of a pork sandwich. Uh, no sauce. I am apple cider vinegar, real warm, poured in. Okay. As much crunched red pepper as possible and tons of salt. I mean, to me, that's it. Preferably not the slaw. Sorry, Pat Martin. But I mean that style of whole hog, yeah, vinegar, salt, crushed red pepper. That's yeah. it, man. I mean, I'm as literally as happy as a hog, man. That's my favorite style. Hard to find. Well, um, I'm I'm happy as a hog with this conversation. It was great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining me. Congrats on another wonderful book, uh, guys. Uh, if you would do yourself a favor by going and picking up this book. It is absolutely stunning. Um, you won't regret it. Some great stories, incredible recipes filled with uh, some really easily achievable recipes, not a ton of ingredients. Anybody can do this. Um, thanks a lot for joining us. Really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me and sorry about Star Wars. It's all right. <laughs> and for the rest of you folks, thanks for joining us and uh, may the smoke be with all of you, but not with him. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast with Joe Levitt.